G'day all, John O'Duncan. Time for another edition of the PRL Doco Club. Progressive Rugby League. The history of British Rugby League is a proud and eventful one, and one fascinating chapter is the way Welsh players have enriched the British game throughout its history. Some of the names that most resonate in British Rugby League are Welsh. Gus Risman, Jim Sullivan, Billy Boston, Roy Francis, Clive Sullivan, Jonathan Davis. The list goes on and on and on. What makes this story especially interesting is that these Welsh players not only had to make the usual sacrifices one must to crack the big time as an athlete, they had to sacrifice so much more. Because these legends didn't rise through the rugby league ranks to make it in the 13 site game. They grew up rugby union players in a rugby union mad country. By switching to rugby league, players were often stigmatised and ostracised by their home communities, remaining outcasts for decades afterwards. Once they were gone, they would not be welcomed back. Then, after making the move, they had to weather a brutal physical storm by English league players. None too pleased about the big transfer fees and red carpet ride these rugby union upstarts from Wales were seemingly receiving. But more often than not, they proved their worth, and many became legends in their adopted northern hometowns of Wigan, Halifax, Hull, Huddersfield and more. A happy ending, right? Well, not quite. Because while many Welshmen have been immortalised for their exploits on the rugby league field for club and country, their achievements have gone largely unnoticed and unappreciated in their home nation of Wales. Why is that? Well, to help me flesh it all out is Carolyn Hitt. Carolyn is a TV and radio producer, an author and award-winning columnist and the driving force behind the brilliant documentary film The Rugby Codebreakers, a doco that goes deep into the how, the why, the heartache, the glory. Carolyn Hitt, a warm welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank you very much, John Owen. It's great to be talking to you from another hemisphere. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you start off, Carolyn, by telling us what the game of rugby union means to the average Welsh person? Oh my goodness, I could probably fill a separate podcast answering <laughs> that question, but uh, I'll try and be succinct. <laughs> it's basically a big part of our identity. It's, it's a game that we kind of stole from the English public schools, brought into Wales at the end of the 19th century, and it became a big part of kind of nation building in Wales when we became pretty good at it. You know, mm. it was a way for a small country to punch above its weight. And it's been a kind of cross-class game. It's the game of the establishment, the media, as much as, as the ordinary person. Uh, you know, there's often a lot of tension between football. We've been very successful at that nationally in uh, recent years. Mm. But you get the sense that rugby union is the game of the movers and shakers as well as very much the ordinary people. And it's, you know, it's something people use to kind of identify themselves. If you're abroad or whatever, people will talk about you must love rugby. Right. A rugby union, I stress. It's, it's a big part of how we define ourselves, I suppose. Fair enough. Now, what was your relationship with the respective rugby codes growing up? Do people have a relationship with rugby league growing up in Wales at all? Well, I'm now the grand age of 51. So mm-hmm. I was kind of a teenager in the 80s off the back of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And rugby union in the 80s and the 90s, you know, took a particular battering in Wales. Mm. So my relationship with rugby league was very much the enemy. I saw yeah. it as a code that stole my players, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of decimated my my beloved Welsh team. And that's how it was sold to us, you know, as rugby union fans. It was very much the kind of terminology was one of espionage, you know, wow. that kind of people come and, come and scout and raid and spy and then all of a sudden 
you know, in the paper the next day, you'd see a big name disappearing. So it, it was very much a relationship of enmity uh, for a rugby union fan. Fascinating. Now, I understand, obviously, rugby union is the major rugby code in Wales by the length of 10 straights at least. But does rugby league have any mainstream visibility at all in Wales? Or would people have to proactively seek out results of the Super League, for example? I'd very much say the latter, to be honest. Mm-hmm. In terms of television coverage, it's seen as... A, I mean, you know, there have been rugby league teams in Wales, obviously. Mm. But it's seen as more of a... Um, uh, gosh, I don't want to use the word niche. That's probably too strong. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's very, very much the, the little brother to Union. Sure. And, and considered predominantly an English game rather than a Welsh one. Okay. Okay, well, let's get to the documentary. The, the doco chronicles many of the biggest defections from Welsh rugby union to British rugby league through the 20th century and the impact it had on both sides of the border. And as you note, each defection was different and each player had his own set of reasons for leaving. But there were a few common themes, and we'll get to the money side of things shortly. But another common theme was around black Welsh players leaving because of the seemingly common understanding that they would never be able to represent Wales due to the colour of their skin. Before we delve further into that issue, can you paint us a picture of the communities a lot of these players grew up in? Tiger Bay is one that you reference in the film. Yeah, well, it would be predominantly Tiger Bay. I mean, you look at, I think there's one particular primary school in Tiger Bay, which is the Dockland area of Cardiff. And it's it's also the certainly the oldest multicultural community in Wales, and if not in the whole of the UK. Mm-hmm. At its kind of peak, you know, we're doing the, the time when it was a kind of gateway for Welsh coal to the world. Mm-hmm. There were 57 nationalities listed as, as being resident in Tiger Bay. It was right. a very colourful dangerous place it was often portrayed as it though the people who lived there would, would uh, dispute that is very very strong communities and also a sense that a, a peaceful multicultural community often guys from you know across the world would come into tiger bay marry local cardiff girls and you know you'd have that kind of lovely mixture but it was very much a place that was cut off from cardiff itself in many ways and certainly the rest of wales you know so there was this kind of as i say this was the big area in terms of the players we're talking about Mm-hmm. And I listed them here because I just thought it was fascinating. Uh, South Church Street School produced Billy Boston, mm-hmm. Colin Dixon, Johnny Freeman and Gus Risman, who wasn't black, but again, an amazing rugby league figure from Wales. Incredible. And so there was this sense that Tiger Bay wasn't part of the rugby pathway, you know, that even though Cardiff Arms Park was literally walking distance, mm. the connection between kind of white Cardiff and that multicultural kind of community in terms of sport wasn't there. And one of the shocking things, you know, I discovered through the course of making the documentary, and I should say at this point, Jono, as well, that I've taken so much credit for this documentary <laughs> and it really, I really can't do that. I'm, I'm the public face of it, but it was very much a passion project for a great friend and colleague of mine, Tarek Ali, who's a mm. sports producer with BBC Wales originally and now freelance, Alan Golden, the producer, and they kind of fought for this documentary to be made right. for about 10 years. So please give them the credit. Yeah, fabulous. <laughs> even though I'm, I'll speak on their behalf today. So yeah, these incredibly talented young men were coming up through the ranks in, from Tiger Bay, maybe playing local and playing, you know, Billy Boston played for Pontypridd, for example, I think in Leith, but not Cardiff. And you're talking about a time, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s, where sport is very much a product of the society we lived in. And however much I've always kind of naively thought that my country was an inclusive and and diverse place, Mm -hmm. it wasn't at that time. And and so the prejudices and the, the racism that was in our 
population at large, our society at large was, was very much reflected in sport. So so we spoke to players, we spoke to players' families and historians who said, you know, at that point, there wasn't a pathway if you wanted to play for Wales. I mean, there was one story we heard of a guy who had a schoolboy trial and he said, I didn't see the ball. You know, I was the only black boy playing that day and I didn't get a pass. Mm. And it was, you know, it was awful to hear that. Mm. But then the flip side of that was the rugby league scouts. They saw Tiger Bay as, as one of their kind of Welsh hunting grounds. And so, so there was a way forward. And, and that's not to say that there wasn't racism in rugby league. You know, we, we sure. kind of can't paint the codes <laughs> as simply as that. But as you know, Jono, you know, this was a sport that had to make money. And to make money, you wanted the best players. And you went for the best players regardless of, of any other considerations. Whereas, yeah. you know, maybe Cardiff Rugby Club at the time may have had some very uh, uncomfortable considerations when choosing the players. Yes, and, and you're right, Carolyn. Of course, we shouldn't let rugby league off scot-free. I mean, in 1946, as you say in the documentary, Roy Francis, despite being an important part of the Great Britain rugby league team, was controversially left out of the touring Lions team to Australia due to concerns they would offend Australia, who, of course, infamously pursued a white Australia policy and would continue to do so until the 1970s. So it's important to note that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Rugby League in the UK is rightly proud of the fact that the first black British professional coach in any sport and the first black captain of a British national sporting team were both rugby league players. But of course, they're both Welshmen too. Was this ever recognised in Wales at the time? No, I mean, you're talking about Roy Francis, formerly, and Clive, Clive Sullivan, Sullivan there, aren't right. you? Yeah. yeah. I had heard of Clive Sullivan, mainly through Anthony Sullivan, his son, who went on to play rugby union for Wales, of course. Mm. I had not heard of Roy Francis. Okay. And I couldn't believe this because, you know, as we dug into his story and spoke to the great Professor Tony Collins, I'm sure you might have come across. Absolutely. Um, and I would recommend his rugby podcast to your readers. It's really... Uh, it's incomparable. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. And Tony was a huge help to the programme. And he said, you know, Roy Francis was the league counterpart to Carwin James in terms of Welsh rugby history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Carwin James, the great uh, Lions coach, who never got to coach Wales, of course. And, and again, Carwin was gay. And mm. you wonder how much of, the, of a part that played in how his career was shut down on, on that side of the international side. Right. But a great club coach and a great British and Irish Lions coach. Mm-hmm. I, had, I couldn't believe that I'd not heard this story. This was someone born in Tiger Bay, but raised in the valleys, raised in Brimmel by his mum, left Wales as a teenager in 1937. And as you say, became the first black man to play for Great Britain rugby. Rugby League, but then in 1946, you know, was denied that incredible chance to be part of the Indomitables tour. And on mm. that tour, I think there were about about 11 or 12 Welshmen. So, you know, it's, it is a big part mm. of Welsh sport in history that they had that impact, all those boys who'd gone north. And then in terms of him becoming the first black man to coach a professional team in any sport, as Tony Collins pointed out on the programme, you know, that here was a, a black man in 50s Britain in a position of authority. And that was, you know, almost unheard of. And the fact that he wasn't just a great coach. He was a pioneering visionary coach. You know, a lot of the kind of methods he introduced are things we take for granted today, you know, as in filming the players. Mm. He looked at the the whole backstory of players, you know, the relationship with their families and, you know, the importance of them being as happy as home as they were on the playing field Mm -hmm. and championed this fabulous kind of expansive stylish rugby. And I understand that he took over North Sydney Bears for a few seasons in the late 60s and again had a big impact on a kind of coaching revolution in Australia, which, you know, would bear fruits in the next few decades. But again, there were issues with the colour of his skin and he did come home in 71 because of that. It is sad. Mm. You know, mm. I'm not sure of the details of that. But I couldn't believe that I didn't know this story. And I pride myself on knowing a lot about rugby union. It's, it's a huge passion for me. And I thought this was going on at the same time as you know other great heroes of mine. Yeah. And I didn't know this man's story. Mm. But what was lovely in 
you know, we had a lot of feedback after the program and various things have happened since mm. to try and try in some tiny way to put some of these things right. And one of the nicest things was I'm involved with the Welsh Sports Hall of Fame mm-hmm. and we have an induction every year for our role of honour. So I said, can we get Roy on here? You know, this is years too late. We always have a posthumous induction. Uh, and his son, Jeff, came to our annual dinner and I did the citation and Jeff came and made a speech as well and received mm-hmm. the induction on, on his dad's behalf and it was really kind of moving moment. Yeah. And Sport Wales, which is the main kind of governing body here, said they've created... Um, a kind of inspirational tool around his story because they have trouble attracting enough people from BAME backgrounds into coaching in Wales because you know it, it is that thing isn't it I know as a woman you can't be what you can't see mm. in lots of fields and particularly in Welsh sport that applies for kids from ethnic backgrounds and but suddenly with Roy's story is there to say well look there have been people who've gone before you and you know he was one of the best yeah that's great to hear now Obviously, as we say, rugby league was was no angel, but the Welsh Rugby Union really lagged behind rugby league when it came to black representation in their national team. Did the Welsh Rugby Union ever explicitly address the issue of a lack of black representation in their national rugby union team? Was it ever a topic of public debate? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, Mm. I've been trying to think back on this. It's often mistakenly reported that Glenn Webb was the first black player to play for Wales in 1986 against Mm. Tonga, I think. But actually, Mark Brown, Pontypool flanker, was a couple of years earlier. So even that shows that we can't even get it right who was the first player you know it's it's all over wikipedia that it was glenn who again became you know a great role model for young black players (laughs) but i remember colin charvis becoming the first welsh captain of color and nothing was made of that hugely at the time in the way it would have been Mm. we would be so much more aware of it now you know and i'm thinking back you know because colin is a bit younger than me he's my generation Mm -hmm. and i feel sad that that was never kind of exalted enough you know because that was a that again and it was so late in the day when you look Mm. back at you know clive sullivan back in 1972 Mm. captain in great britain and wales yeah and we're talking kind of a couple of decades later for union to catch up and, it, you know, it's not something I can remember ever being a topic of debate, you know. But, I mean, some people might dispute that again. I, mean, I can only speak from my personal memories and experiences there, Johnny. Yeah, well, it's fascinating stuff, really. Now, obviously, money also was front and centre as the major reason why many players left. I'm interested in this because it seems it was common knowledge and accepted that Welsh rugby union players were paid, even though they were supposedly amateur I think there's a quip in the film relating to the difference between a rugby union and rugby league player being that the rugby league player pays tax, i.e. league players <laughs> league players are openly paid while union players were paid under the table to keep the facade of amateurism alive, yet players still defected. Are you able to give us a sense of how much more money rugby league was offering some of these players? Obviously, it varied from player to player and decade to decade, but it must have sure. been substantial. Well, you look at... David Watkins, Di Watkins, you know, was a kind of fabulous outside half of the 60s mm. and great British Lions captain as well in, in the 60s. And, you know, he was one of the huge kind of shock defections because he was the Welsh captain. Mm. And he was offered £15,000 in, in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. You could have got a house for a thousand wow. at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so for a young guy from a working class background, and this again is a point to stress, I think. One of the things I found most fascinating about tracing the whole pattern of defections is that, see, I shouldn't use that word, should I? Of okay. boys who went north. Sure. Defections, yeah. I'm, I'm falling into the the old trap of the, the espionage. <laughs> yeah. I use it as well, so my bad too. <laughs> But you know, the greatest kind of player dreams occur during the Depression, 
in the 20s and 30s and again during the 80s when we're hit by this you know the mm. huge decline in industry in Wales at the time of the the miner strikes and the mm-hmm. collapse of the steel industry so you're looking at players who were literally had a chance to use their talent to put money on the table and I think that really made me think about you know because again players were almost portrayed as kind of greedy for wanting to go and be mm. paid for what they loved and what they did brilliantly and it's it is a ridiculous concept now when you think about it mm. especially as you say you know you trace right back to the start of the split mm-hmm. and in the 1900s welsh players are getting these kind of fabulous watches and gold medals or even you know a, a nice leg of lamb <laughs> from a local butcher so blindside remuneration was going on at the time yeah. a lot you know right through the decades so there was this hypocrisy at the heart of it as well mm. yeah i mean you talk about espionage and all that sort of thing earlier in the show one of the fascinating parts of the film is the footage of interviews with rugby league scouts from what maybe the 50s who kind of brag oh, yes. about <laughs> brag about the yeah. methods of nailing a rugby union star from wales you know when they're getting yeah. married that's a good time to approach them they say <laughs> yeah, that and must have been fun to look lovely. into it was i love that clip there aren't they kind of with their cigarettes in yeah. the boardroom you know discussing their methods but again they discuss the kind of class aspect of it and you know compared to next door in england we don't think of ourselves in wales as a class-ridden society mm. but there was that divide in rugby between the the grammar school backs and the you know the kind of coal miner forwards or whatever mm. and they never approached or, anyone from oxford or cambridge of course oxford that or was... cambridge. no no <laughs> and again people who had good secure professional jobs mm. could play rugby for the love of it in those periods but if you were a kind of manual worker you know with precarious work then why wouldn't you take that chance Mm. but but again the flip side of it was leaving your community and in many cases being ostracized by the people you left behind Mm. and that's again one of the the saddest parts of the story that we looked into now carolyn wales of course as we mentioned is an intensely proud rugby union nation with hundreds of players exiting welsh rugby union for rugby league Can you give us a sense of the intensity of the antipathy felt by Welsh rugby union fans and more broadly the Welsh nation towards the sport of rugby league? You touched on it before, but can you drill down a bit further into that intensity and why? There were some horror stories. I mean, you literally, if you were seen just talking to a scout, not even setting foot on a pitch for a trial or or leaving your village, if there was a scout in the village and you were seen talking to them, you could be banned for life from Rugby Union. We spoke to Clive Griffiths in the film who went north, I think, in the early 80s, fullback. Mm-hmm. And he was almost tearful. And it was it was just painful to watch that all these years later, it still hurt so much. Mm. Because he said there were people who would cross the street. That You know, the stories about David Watkins coming back have been thrown out of Cardiff Arms Park's bar. Really kind of awful, embarrassing moments where these guys were just treated as pariahs. And, you know, as I said earlier, Jono, we were kind of brainwashed to feel like that, mm. that, that they were traitors. And I'm embarrassed to even admit that now, having kind of dug into all this. And, and what do you put that down to, Carolyn? Is it just that myth of the nation-building Welsh rugby union team that just got so great that anything that challenged it, you know, just made people rabid with anger? That must be a part of it, because again, it was the one thing, particularly when, particularly in the 70s, you know, when a lot of things were going on in Wales in terms of industrial decline, it was the one thing that you could still take pride in. It Mm. was the one thing that gave you, you know, that sense of us being a proud nation when everything else was kind of unravelling. And Mm. it was a kind of thread that, you know, took you back through the decades to the early days, you know, the kind of glory days of the 1900s and briefly in the 50s as well. And so it was... Yeah, it's always more than a game in Wales. It's part of who we are. So you're kind of 
knocking at people's sense of self, I suppose, mm-hmm. when you lost members of the family, you know, it's kind yeah. of... Um, and because I suppose and, you said rugby league was considered an English game, that yes, sort of yeah. contributed as well. Yeah, because, you know, there were clubs in Wales, I think, in the 30s, you know, kind of Merthyr and Pots of the Ronda, I think, but, it, you know, it never had the hold here. And that's something I, I found fascinating as well, because if you look back to the split, you'd think we would align ourselves more with a kind of northern English Egalitarian we, sort of yeah, concept, the, yeah. Yeah, very much more than the kind of Oxbridge-dominated Blazerati of, of the South, you mm. know. But the game had been brought into Wales by a Welsh guys who'd gone to Oxford and Cambridge and were teaching in, you know, in the handful of private schools that existed in Wales. That's kind of how it started and then grew into the communities. And there was also, you know, we wouldn't have been able to play internationals sure. if we'd gone with the Northern Code as well. So, mm. so there was always that big division of alignment with the kind of English masters of the game in the South. Mm. But as you say, Johnny, it was just such a journey of discovery for me because I felt so many of my prejudices overturned. And yet even very, very small minority of people, the the feedback has been almost 99% Mm. kind of positive because lots of people responded in the the way that I did. was like, you know, gosh, blimey, I can't believe this this went on. Um, But occasionally people still say, oh yeah, but they went for the money. And I thought, in a lot of cases, they didn't just go for the money. Mm. They went because they were disadvantaged in terms of the colour of their skin and the class that they were in as well. It was a much bigger and more nuanced picture than we ever had painted to us. Mm. Now, the flow of Welsh players to UK Rugby League is, is fairly constant from the end of World War I until 1995 when Rugby Union officially turns professional. But there are waves and surges, and the final surge, as you mentioned, is the 1980s and early 90s surge, highlighted by the defection of Welsh Rugby Union captain Jonathan Davis. For a rugby union-mad country who were going through some tough times on the field and in the working-class towns, this one seemed to cut very, very deep. What are your personal memories about that time, and how did you feel about it? I was in mourning, Jono. Mm. <laughs> it was a, it was like a bereavement. I was in university at the time, and the funny thing is, when I made the program, um, an old college friend got in touch with me, who's actually German, he lives in Germany, and you know knows nothing about rugby union. Mm. And he said, "Oh God, yeah, I just remember the Jonathan moment, and mm. even he could remember it, <laughs> probably because I was weeping in college. Uh, it was massive. But then again, Jonathan's somebody I've come to know well and hugely admire. And and you look back to the kind of what else was going on in that time in his rugby life." Mm. and Welsh rugby generally you know we had some great talent and he was at the heart of it triple crown in 1988 narrowly missed out on the grand slam and it just did feel at that point that maybe you know we were coming back to the glories of the previous decade Mm. there was some great talent around but Wales went off to New Zealand on tour and was smashed I think we'd been third in the World Cup in 87 as well but they went off as I say after being triple crown champions Mm. but had this really kind of sobering tour in New Zealand but what Jonathan saw out there was just how kind of professionalised and all but named the game was, you know, mm-hmm. how the players were given off time off to train, how they were doing television ads. Yeah. You know? the, the game was hurtling towards professionalism yeah. in the Southern Hemisphere, where we were clinging to these kind of outmoded Corinthian ideals in the North. Mm. And Jonathan actually addressed the WIU with his concerns and said, you know, we need to change. Mm. But he wasn't listened to. And uh, he had his first son. He'd been somebody from, you know, a very working class background. He was a painter and decorator by trade. Mm-hmm. 
and he had this God-given talent. Yeah. And why would he not make the use of that and secure his family? And he says, as he says in the program, I said at the time I wanted a new challenge. It was about rugby. He said, he said bullshit. He said it was about securing my family. Yeah. And I think, you know, if that was explained to us a bit more at the time, we would have understood it. But we only ever saw it in terms of, you know, you're leaving us and our team will just collapse, which it did, of course. You know, in the, mm. that's one of the darkest periods of Welsh rugby. We're wooden spoon champions, which is an oxymoron, I know, <laughs> <laughs> for several years after that. Yeah. But he came back. He came back. <laughs> yes. And lit up rugby league. And, you know, and again, we take pride now, I think, in what he achieved in the north. You look mm. at some of that footage that we showed in the programme and that's another thing we wanted to stress. We need to take pride in what we've achieved in both codes. Because the imbalance in, in how we've represented those histories is, is massive. Mm. Okay, now we talk about how rugby league was seen in Wales up until the 90s, so it was obviously enemy number one. What about yeah. now that rugby union is fully professional? Obviously, there's not a whole bunch of players going to the 13-person-a-side game anymore. Is the attitude towards rugby league, uh, as the antipathy, I'm guessing, has lessened somewhat? Oh, very much so. I mean, there was that period where where people kept coming back. And when someone like Yeston Harris, of course, mm. uh, hadn't gone north in the first place, he'd been north and come south. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I remember how his, when he was introduced in the first press conference and Glanmore Griffiths, the very kind of, he's the man who got the stadium built here, but, you know, the kind of ultimate Welsh blazer in mm. many ways. You know, he, he announced Yeston Harris as payback for a hundred years of raids on our game. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was, Oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, there is no kind of antipathy towards rugby league now. If anything, there's a lot of, you know, I feel it personally, you know, when I speak to, to people in rugby league, particularly at the moment, because, you know, lockdown and, mm. and the crisis is having such a huge impact on sport. And I know, you know, we prioritise our health over everything at the moment, but r- rugby league in particular has been, with mm. the World Cup supposedly coming next year, is going to take a massive hit. Mm. And no, I think there's a kind of brotherhood now that didn't exist in the past, certainly. That's very interesting, and it's good to hear. Carolyn, you you touched on it briefly before, but what has been the reaction to the documentary from your fellow country women and men in Wales? Obviously, mostly positive. Some people, you say, have been a bit... uh, you know, that's that's the way it was. Yeah, those are very much in the minority. The majority, and a lot of people of my generation in particular, because, you know, we grew up in the, the kind of barren years, mm-hmm. have totally changed their perception. And, you know, some very, very positive things have happened, particularly in relation to the ignorance of our kind of Welsh black history. After the programme, Vaughan Gething, who is our health minister, he's very busy at the moment, bless him. <laughs> Vaughan is, is a man of colour, and mm-hmm. he was touched particularly by the documentary, and he got in touch and said, we'd like to arrange an event at the Welsh Parliament to celebrate the memory and, you know, and we'll take it from there. Maybe there's more things we can do. But, you know, he worked with us to get in touch with the, the families of the descendants of the players that we featured. Fabulous. And, yeah, we had a kind of afternoon with video footage and the chairman of the Welsh Rugby Union, Gareth Davis, himself, a, you know, a former Welsh international, mm. got up and spoke about the respective histories of the game and the need for us to kind of to heal any lingering wounds. It was, a, it was a lovely event, lovely kind of emotional afternoon. There's also a, a kind of working party to get a statue of Billy Boston. Okay. You know, Billy Boston was, you know, ugh. I mean, I look at the footage of Billy Boston in the 50s. And That's he, incredible. You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's like Jonah Lomu before his time. Yeah. You know, he's kind of, and yet, you know, ugh, you know, one of the great kind of 
scandals of Welsh sport that he never got the chance here and, mm. and went north. There's a statue of him in Wembley. There's a statue of him in Wigan. <laughs> you know, hopefully there'll be a statue in his birthplace because he comes back here every year to the Sports Hall of Fame dinner right. and is very much proud of his, his heritage. Yeah. So, yeah, there's been a, a really a kind of... A debate, really, I suppose, about what we choose to remember and what we should remember, mm. and that we have this kind of rich history of Welsh achievement. And just because it didn't take place in Wales, mm. it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be acknowledged. Yeah. And that was what was lovely for me when we were filming in the north of England. The welcome we got mm. was just fabulous. And to kind of go into the, the trophy rooms of these clubs and see Welsh shirts everywhere, Welsh names everywhere. Yeah. I went to Salford and they have this lovely timeline of their history. And the first Welsh player they get in the 1900s was somebody from my home village, mm. you know, in Point of Pier. <laughs> I, you know, immediately had kind of resonated for me then. And to see, you know, to go to Hull, drive into the city on Clive Sullivan Way, mm. you know, because famously Clive Sullivan, somebody wrote that he crossed the racial divide, but he also crossed the divide of playing for Hull FC and Hull Kingston Rovers. Yeah. <laughs> which, uh, and you have no to be a very feet. special special man to unite those respective fan bases. Mm. But to go to that fixture that's held every year in his memory and see, you know, the two Hull clubs coming together to play a preseason and compete for the Clive Sullivan Trophy. Mm. And again, you know, this, this is a man who took Great Britain to World Cup victory mm. and that wasn't even mentioned in 1972 on the Welsh Sports Personality of the Year programme. Amazing. It is just an absolute scandal. So in a small way, I hope we've just kind of righted some of those dreadful wrongs and, and, and just sparked people's interest. You know, mm. people have said, oh, there's great books in this. I said, well, some great books have already been written. You know, they are out there. But hopefully, you know, we've just put people on a path to exploring further and, and remembering some incredible Welsh rugby heroes. Yes, well, we actually did a, a book club on True Professional by James Oddy on the story of Clive Sullivan. So yeah, you're right. Oh, there have been, there have yeah, been excellent books a, written by it. He's a great story, yeah. Yeah. Well, you really do also get the, the warmth. The warmth comes through in the film from those northern towns as well. Their love for the Welsh players, it really comes through. So Absolutely. It's, a, it's a great yeah. achievement. And, Carolyn, you know you've done a great documentary where you are the cause of change. So you really, uh, you and the, the team there really should take great pride in that. Oh, John, it's very much a team effort. I've of really course. got to stress that, but that's, I appreciate what you're saying. Thank you. Sure. Now, Carolyn, we're running out of time, but before we go, how can people watch the film now, particularly in Australia? Is it possible? That's what I'm not sure of, Jonah, because of the BBC iPlayer. It's on the iPlayer at the moment for a few more weeks. Mm -hmm. I know, I mean, you know, you haven't heard this from me, but apparently there are these kind of methods with VPNs that you can kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Can I be honest, Carolyn? I I tried... (laughs) I tried and it didn't work even with a VPN, but I did. Oh, really? I did find a way somehow, but um, <laughs> it wasn't easy. But look, you, unofficially, you know, I, of course. Unofficially, you can tell your listeners how they might be able to catch this. Officially, I can't possibly comment on it because I might get into trouble with the BBC. But it would be lovely, actually, because people from New Zealand have asked the same question. Mm. It would be great to get you know a version of it out to, to your side of the world because well, you know there are so many parallels and on, on Australia is, is a part of the story. So absolutely, um, yeah. well, Carolyn. And the thing is, Australia Australia is the home of, I'm pretty sure, the only 24-hour rugby league channel. So you'd think there would or should be interest from those people because it's a fa- fantastic story and there's many, many rugby league fans who would love to watch it. I'll, let, let me take that back to Tarek and Alan and, uh, and see if we can work on it because as I say, you know, it would be, it would be lovely to find a, an audience in, in your part of the world. Absolutely. All right, Carolyn, we are unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through this utterly fascinating chapter in rugby league history. 
Carolyn Hitt, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Absolute pleasure, Jono, and thanks so much for your interest. Wonderful. Progressive Rugby League. Thanks, Carolyn. An enlightening conversation and great to see how the beautifully empathetic storytelling of the film has affected a little bit of change and, you know, compelled people to reconsider and self-reflect. A real achievement, I think. Now, you would have noticed Carolyn referenced Roy Francis's time at the North City Bears. And being a pro at this interview thing, she left space for me, the resident Australian in the conversation, to come on in with my all-Australian rugby league knowledge. But to be honest, and of course, I didn't know about Roy's time at the North Sydney Bears. Or did I? Things come in and out of this brain all the time. Anyway, I googled his time at the Bears to learn more about it and to see if I could find anything on how his race affected his time there and his ultimate departure. And I couldn't find anything in-depth on the topic except references that it was, in fact, a factor. Anyway, his coaching record at the Bears was solid. He coached the team in 1969 and 1970. According to Wikipedia, he led North Sydney to 7th in 1969 with 10 wins and a draw, and 9th in 1970 with 7 wins. In both the year before and after he joined, so that's 1968 and 1971, the Bears finished 11th of 12 teams with a combined 9 wins in those two seasons. So his 17 wins and a draw look pretty good. There's obviously so much more to the Roy Francis story, so I implore someone, anyone, to write a book on the man. What a book club that would be. And if there's already a book written on Roy Francis, please, friends, enlighten us on Twitter or progressiverl at outlook.com. Once again, my Googling was to little avail, leaving me thinking, am I just really bad at Googling? Did I miss that class in school? Anyway... All right, let's call it a night. Hey, thanks as always for all the kindness and support you've been giving the pod. Really, really appreciate it. Until we next cross paths, rugby league hobby, and see ya. Mm-hmm.